Hello, listeners. My name is Pietro, and welcome to another episode of the LSE Focal Point podcast. Today, we are delighted to be joined by Jeremy Taylor. Jeremy is Managing Director and CEO at the Lazard Asset Management Limited London office and oversees business activities in the UK, Ireland, Benelux, Nordic, and Middle East regions. Prior to becoming CEO, Jeremy was the co-director of research and also served as a research analyst, primarily covering the telecom sector. Prior to joining Lazard, Jeremy was a director and research analyst with UBS Warburg. He has an MSc in Engineering, Economics and Management from St. Peter's College, Oxford University. Jeremy, can you tell us more about your career journey and how you got to where you are today, Jeremy? Yes, absolutely. To be honest, I probably have a very unusual journey becoming the CEO of an asset management business. I grew up in North Yorkshire, where I am today, in fact, in a small village. And I was really part of a family business. My dad had set up a haulage business, heavy goods business, pretty much as I was born. And by the time I was getting to the end of university, I was fully involved in the family business. We were up to 50 employees. We were thinking about big plans between me and my two brothers to expand this business. And I only ever saw myself in, in, in the, in the haulage operation, right to the point where I have a class one heavy goods license today. So what happened? Well, really, as I was doing my finals at university, everything changed through a traumatic experience, business pretty much closed overnight. And I really had to turn left and go and get a job. And so having been pushed in my education through my father saying, you know, the one thing in life you really need to get is a good education. And the one thing he always felt he missed was a good education. I was finishing Oxford and was lucky enough to get onto Milk Round and was picked up by a firm called UBS Warburg, which previously I'd never heard of. I started in corporate finance, worked in M&A and raising capital, spent four years doing the typical 20 plus hours a day. They really felt like dog years then. <laughs> so I'd say I had probably 28 years experience in corporate finance. Moved across into research. SBC Warburg had changed its name to UBS at that point. I spent three years on, on the sell side. Really didn't feel like I'd found my place. I really enjoyed the work. I really enjoyed the understanding of companies, but I didn't feel I was leveraging my insights very well. And so when one of my best clients, who was Lazard Asset Management at the time, this is in 2003, asked me to come and be a telecoms analyst with the firm, I thought that would be great. I'd actually be buying and selling real stocks, you know, real portfolios rather than advising other people to do it. And that's been the majority of my career. So I've been 15 years as an analyst and then head of research at Lazard. And then the last five years as a CEO in London. Sounds very interesting with a very unique start and flexibility shown on your behalf there, Jeremy, at the start of your career. And I wanted to ask, so you, at university, you studied engineering, economics, and management, right? And I want to ask, how did you find your degree and your university experience useful for the future, which you hadn't even expected for yourself? Yeah, that's a good one. I, I think they actually have given up doing it, engineering, economics, and management because such a mouthful and, and a pretty involved degree. What did I learn? I think the biggest thing I learned was I learned how to teach myself. So throughout my time at Oxford, I found it incredibly difficult when I started at Oxford. The first two years, I probably really didn't focus hard enough 
all my academic studies, too much sport, too much, too many friends, too much fun. And then I realized I had to knuckle down because you can't leave university without a two, one, at least. So I went from being bottom of the class to claw myself up to, to, to achieve my two, one. But I wouldn't say there's any particular topic that I learned at university that's helped me. It was really that process of teaching myself to understand new things and applying myself is what I've come away with. So really a placeholder for just grit, determination and competency, really, which you need a lot of in the industry. You referenced the 20 hour plus work days that you used to do at the very beginning. So what is different about asset management when compared to other areas of finance? And what role has it played so far and what role will it play in the future? And I think you can speak to this quite well, considering, you know, your experience with those, with those hours in corporate finance primarily, and then moving over to research. Yeah. So look, asset management is really about people's savings. We actually manage people's savings at the end of the day. It's not the role of collecting people's savings. It's not the role of buying and selling the securities in the market. It's really the role of really managing their savings and making the investment decisions around which companies we're going to invest people's savings in over a long period of time. So, you know, and, and it's the ownership component, not just the decision to invest. So it's talking to the management, it's really understanding industries, it's understanding and challenging how those industries are changing and how the companies that we own on behalf of our clients um, should be aware of all sorts of risks and challenges. And yeah, so I, I think, I really think we're in the savings industry. Um, what do you think asset management will play as a role in the future? Because it's seen a lot of change recently, of course, with all the focus that there is of where we should really ideally be allocating capital. Yeah, so look, the asset management industry spreads right across listed securities, you know, primarily. So, and, and there's a huge spread there, you know, from fixed income, convertibles, you know, right through to all sorts of listed equities. And I, I'd say... You know, if you look backwards over the industry for a long time, technology has had a really big impact on our industry. Technology has made it cheaper and cheaper to access each area of the marketplace. So ETFs are available, passive instruments are available, which weren't available 10 years ago and 20 years ago. So what does active asset management add to the industry? I mean, really, you know, when you look at investing and you look at indices, most of the time, they reflect the past. You know, the scale of technology within the US market really reflects what's happened over the last 10 years. It doesn't necessarily reflect what's going to happen over the next 10 years. And it's that forward-looking component, I think, in, you know, active investing, which is really interesting for our industry. And on the topic of active investing and you as an individual right now, as, a, as an asset management professional and CEO, how has your day-to-day -day changed? Of course, you, we, we've really spoken a couple of times now about how it used to be quite rigorous at the beginning. And now, you know, you're at a different stage of your career, you're now a CEO, right? And I also read that the team at Lazard Asset Management has 4,000 meetings annually with companies, you know, to do their work. How would you describe your day-to-day? -day? And, you know, what's, what's sometimes your favorite parts of it, your least favorite parts of it? Look, I, I'm an analyst at heart, so I love studying things. Whenever I come across a topic that I don't know anything about, and this is probably what I've come out of university doing, is I can't wait to get into the quarterly report or the, you know, 
the research report or the annual report or some, some regulatory publication, really just to understand how something is changing, how business is changing. So how's my job changed? I've gone from studying companies to studying our own business and studying what our clients need. So, you know, our clients are large wealth managers right through to defined benefit pension schemes. And, you know, in the defined benefit pension scheme world, they, you know, the world changed a lot for them last year. You know, the rising interest rates, in particular the spike in bond yields in October, September, October, was a really big shift for defined benefit pension scheme. It really changed the way that they should think about asset allocation. Rising inflation rates is, is it exactly the same challenge. How do our clients change the way they should invest their capital going forwards in a much higher inflationary environment? So all those things are super interesting to me. Has my job changed as CEO? I now do 200 plus things at any moment in time. I've got a fantastic team around me that helps me and, and puts these questions and, and decisions in front of me. But I really need to be able to swap and change between what's most important within the business to what's most important to the individuals that work for us. And, and juggling lots of things at the same time is really critical in being a CEO. Mm-hmm. And what have you found to be the most, you, you alluded to your organization and your team, right? What have you found to be the most unique factor of Lazard Asset Management during the time you've been a part of the organization? Well, I, I would say we work in a firm where everyone makes a difference. And if they didn't make a difference, you know, then they probably wouldn't be with us it, because they love that freedom of taking responsibility for their area of the business. And I just, I really enjoy being able to switch across different groups in the business, catch up on how some of the challenges are evolving, how we're dealing with, you know, really critical issues to clients and just sort of help them, guide them with a single sort of focus. So yeah, I think, I think what's different about Lazard, I just say everyone makes a difference. Mm -hmm. And now onto business, as you alluded to guiding your clients and so forth. I recently read an FT article from the, around about January 3rd about how asset managers are bracing for the tough year that will be 2023. And within it, you were referenced saying, what does an asset manager do as revenues go down? You tend to do less of what hasn't worked over the past three to five years and put greater scrutiny on things that haven't grown, dot, dot, dot. You don't give up on it. You don't give up on any scale product end quotation. It seems to have cut short in the reference by the dot, dot, dot. So perhaps you wouldn't mind bringing this idea to audible life for our listeners? Yeah, sure. So the first thing listeners should understand is that if you're going to work in the equity markets or you're going to work in an asset management business, you're tying yourself to revenues, which are linked to the equity market or fixed income markets. So, you know. Everyone is aware the last year, you know, markets have fallen 20% across the globe. So that means our revenues are down 20% as well. And, you know, companies have the flexibility to deal with a 20% fall in revenues and yet continue to deliver the same level of service and the same insights. And that's something which I think is pretty unique about asset management. So, but, and, and, and my point really in the interview was that 
we don't want to change our business as our revenues go down. But at the margin, things that we've been trialing, which haven't worked, and we do a lot of product development, and we think of a lot of new, interesting ideas, and we will, you know, pursue them for three to five years. If they haven't turned out to be good routes to invest or haven't attracted many clients, then, then we should give up on them at times when we're under stress. But the really key message, which I was trying to get into you, is that, you know, to be an organization that's been around for 175 years this year, then you need to be able to weather cycles and 20% falling revenues is something that you want to continue operating through without making too many significant cuts. Mm-hmm. And another piece of media that I also read that I also wanted to inquire about, this might be a bit more difficult, slightly older, but this time it's about ESG, right? So ESG, energy and inflation specifically. So on CNBC, you very interestingly spoke about needing to fully cost polluting industries, which actually reminded me of my A-level economics studies and externalities for any A-level students listening and how ESG in energy will most likely be inflationary in the short term, but deflationary in the long term. So of course, this interview was back in December, 2021. So what has changed since then from the obvious to what may be going unnoticed? Yeah, so look, the, I'm pleased you picked up on this because this, this was a topic that I was talking about throughout 2020 and 2021. You know, we are incredibly focused on the environment today. We're incredibly focused on this, you know, externality that no one has paid for. And if you think about, you know, what the costs of cleaning up our energy sources are, then they are going to drive up costs in the short term. You know, very simply put, you know, look at the cement industry, the steel industry, where there are significant carbon emissions. As they move to clean up those operations, they're going to have to add additional capital. And we did studies and we've looked at other people's research that suggested that if you've fully costed their emissions, they would be a loss-making industry. And they're too critical to society to be, you know, unsustainable from an economic point of view. Hence, there are cost pressures coming through across numerous industries, but particularly energy. In the very long term, some of these changes could be deflationary. The incremental cost of producing a kilowatt of electricity, using renewable energy, you know, catch, capturing solar, capturing wind, the incremental cost is zero. It's almost like the extra seat on the airline that can go for a pound. So in the very long term, as we get sufficient renewable capacity in place, and we've worked out how to evenly provide that electricity through the day, then the cost of energy could well come down. So bringing it back to a more personal level, what has been your biggest learning during your career? So I, as I was preparing for this interview, I was thinking a little bit about this. And one thing which I have felt more recently is that hard work is underappreciated. I think people, when they start their career, may be willing to work really hard for the first few years, but actually consistently working hard over time is really what drives your career. And, you know, I, you know, I probably put a lot of hours in, they probably all haven't been that productive, but I've always been pretty focused. And if I were giving anybody any advice coming into the workplace, it would be to think, you know, put everything into it and really think about 
you know, how much you can you know, help an organization or help the company you're working with. So I think that's pretty high on the list. I think another thing which is really important is fairness and trust. I think they sort of come together. In any situation, you'll always be put in, a, in an awkward position at some point in your career. And I think, you know, just sticking to your own principles and being fair to the people you work with is it always going to be well rewarded over a period of time. So if you work hard and you're fair with people and, and you treat people in the same way you'd expect to be treated yourself, then I think that will go a long way. And to finish off, I feel like you've already answered this with that answer, there, but do you have any advice that you would give to the undergraduates of today who are either unsure of what they want to do in the future or are looking to break into your line of business? The single piece of advice which I would give to any graduate coming into the workplace is that you really need to try and match your talents with the role, the requirements, the role you're going into. And, you know, as I've looked back on my career, I've enjoyed it most when things that I feel I'm good at and hopefully show myself that I'm good at really match the requirements of the job. If you got me into a job which, you know, required me to write lots of English essays, I'd probably really struggle. But in a numerical, logical reasoning job where there's a complexity of, of issues that I need to find the, the three key things that are going to make a difference, then that's just a strength that I've found over time. So yeah, really match your talents with, with the role that you're putting yourself forward for. I think that's the key. I think that is a very underappreciated piece of advice that I haven't actually heard so far from, from our speakers. So thank you very much for that, Jeremy. And on that note, we, we're done today for our episode. Uh, thank you again, Jeremy, for joining us. And thank you to the listeners for listening to the episode. We cover anything from asset management to tech on the LSE Focal Point. So if you're interested, make sure to stay tuned for more episodes like these in the future. And thank you once again, Jeremy, for joining us today. Thank you very much.